Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. We please welcome Billy Joel, Columbia recording artist, with his band. There are make or break moments in every successful musician's career. Sometimes they're huge, cataclysmic events. Other times, they're subtle nods that point a performer in the right direction. For Billy Joel, a pair of shows in November of 1973 was the latter. And we have the tapes to prove it. Piano Man had just been released, and Billy was grinding out dates opening for the Beach Boys and the Doobie Brothers. Being an opening act wasn't suiting Billy, so he took up a local DJ on his offer to play a show at the Roxy Theater in Northampton, Pennsylvania, a few miles north of Allentown. By all accounts, it would be his first time headlining a theater. And, put into the context of his career at this point, it's safe to say that this engagement informed his business strategy as well as some of his song material afterward. The DJ, Denny Somak, recorded the shows and rediscovered the tapes a few years ago. He made four of the songs available on YouTube, including one that was never released on an album. As intriguing as these early renditions are, the big draw here is Billy's off-the-cuff comments that reveal much about his career and outlook up to this point. In this episode, we're exploring both the songs and the conversation on the Roxy tapes. We also spoke with Denny Somak to learn more about the events leading up to the shows. Join us as we dig deep into the audio artifacts of Billy Joel's first headlining theater engagement. this bootleg hasn't gotten uh, more coverage or more regard. I know it only came out a few years ago, but it is a pretty significant one uh, just for the historical context. And also, you know, when you listen to it, it reminds me of when we did the 19, I want to say 71 episode where we listened to those recordings of Billy playing and he started doing impressions and it seemed like impressions for the first time. And it was like, oh, you guys like impressions. And you know, in our origin story now, we feel like that's what kicked off years and years of them. You know, in sort of the yeah. same way, there are things that Billy says in this uh, bootleg, in this concert recording, uh, that really give a lot of insight into his frame of mind at that time uh, in a very unfiltered way, which is not incongruous with what we know about, but also just a little, little more shade and nuance there. You know, a little more context, little, you know, little kind of rough edges that were still there before history got a chance to uh, dull them down. Yeah. And what I love about these early recordings 
of live shows. It's once you hit 1977-78, it was arenas and coliseums and stadiums and the big venues. So to see Billy, you know, this is what 1973, so he's going to be 24 years old. Yeah. Still really honing his craft as a performer. You know, as Billy Joel, you know, he had the run with the Hassles and a little stint doing the Attila thing, but seeing Billy working on developing his stage banter and how these songs are going to go live. I really love to see the developing Billy and love to hear it. We're going to let Denny Somak tell a lot of the story. Denny was a DJ at the time up in Allentown, and he was the one responsible for getting Cold Spring Harbor into the ears of his listeners to the point where uh, there's a, there was a big pocket of people in I guess, the northeast part of Pennsylvania there that really knew Billy that early on and knew Cold Spring Harbor when nobody else did. And he was the one responsible for bringing Billy in for what was his first theater show. So we're going to hear a quick interview from him. Once we have that context, Michael and I are going to do our usual play-by-play of the songs that you can hear from this show online. I also want to thank you for taking the reins on the interview here. Uh, about two weeks after getting home from my trip, I uh, ended up with COVID. So I was kind of down for the count for a while and was not in any any state of mind or <laughs> mood to be recording. Um, so Jack took the ball on this one and ran with it and got some really interesting stories. Before we dive into those interviews, though, we actually have a few things kind of happening in the Billy Joel world. I thought we'd kind of run down. Uh, September, we actually had two uh, album anniversaries, the Nylon Curtain hitting 40 years on September 23rd. And we had The Stranger 45 years on September 29th. And that's actually the day we're recording this. It's cool to see the albums hitting these big anniversary milestones. Wild to me that The Stranger and Nylon Curtain are only five years apart. Pretty wild that they, they've been out for as long as they have been now. You know, on the Nylon Curtain front as well, in celebration of 40 years, Sony tapped Brad Shaw Lee, our friend of the podcast, who was assistant engineer on the album, worked on a ton of the Billy Phil Ramone records. Uh, they actually tapped Brad to completely remix the Nylon Curtain from the ground up in Dolby Atmos, you know, spatial audio. So if you've got uh, Prime Music, if you've got Apple Music, and I think Tidal, you can actually hear the the Dolby Atmos mix of the Nylon Curtain. And I actually got a a trial of Amazon Music Unlimited, which is how you can hear it, and because I really wanted to hear this new mix. And, you know, I tell you what, granted, I'm only hearing it in stereo in my Bose headphones and whatnot. So I'm not getting the full Dolby Atmos experience, but I am totally hearing new nuances and new elements and uh, new placement of instrumentation in the mix that um, weren't there before. It's subtle enough to where probably most people wouldn't know the difference. But for me, it was a completely new listening experience. And um, so if you have a chance to do it, I recommend really checking it out because Brad Brad did such a cool job with this. One of the first things I went to was pressure. I'm like, oh, did he get rid of the beginning of him saying intro after the Sesame Street line? <laughs> and he did. Oh, no. Oh, that's a, it's such not a there moment. anymore. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it was crazy. You know, a couple of things I remember, especially too, like in Good Nights I Gone, that acoustic guitar um, that I believe is Russell. Mm-hmm. I feel like he is literally sitting next to me playing it. Yeah. And where's the orchestra? Billy's vocal is just right in front of you. I'm excited now. You know, I glanced at the emails that Brad sent us and I hadn't really read them too closely. And I just saw a title. I'm like, well, I don't have title. I'm not getting into this. And I think I still have Amazon Unlimited because I have Prime. 
So uh, I yeah. think uh, let's let's wrap this up quickly because I got some listening to, <laughs> to do tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> really subtle, but really great choices along the way. Yeah. You guys out there, if you've listened, you know, what do you think of the new experience of it? Yeah. Let us know. Uh, put some headphones on, get in the mood, however you do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody wants to and, uh, AB it with the vinyl, by the way. I'm I'm interested in that too. Uh let's see what else we got here. Oh yeah, Sirius XM as well. They uh they announced that in conjunction with Live at Yankee Stadium, they're bringing back the Billy Joel channel for the month of October. So it's gonna be out October first to the thirtieth. Yeah, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of the cuts from Yankee Stadium that are gonna be heavily featured and new programming and things like that that they've introduced. So I think if you check out the the blog on the SiriusXM website, they've got all the details on what's going on, but that's coming up as well. And again, Live at Yankee Stadium coming out on November 4th, which we've been talking about a lot. We're going to be covering it again really heavily on our episode just after that. Lastly, we got a couple more show announcements too. Kicking off uh, 2023, so the residency continues playing January 13th there. Super excited for all our London friends. He announced a show in London at BST Hyde Park. Yeah. It's going to be July 7th of next year, and it's going to be his only show there next year. So if you guys are at all able to make that show, get on it, because that's going to be your only shot. 2023, I think it's time for me to, to, go, to go to one of the uh, MSG shows. I have never been. Yeah, you have to go to at least one. Uh, I've been fairly spoiled. I've been to three of them. When I used to go to New York for the auto show, I went like 2013 through 17. So it was like a four or five year stretch every April. Just between those years, I saw Billy three times. I saw the Lords once. I saw Big Shot once. Got to see Seinfeld do stand up. <laughs> got to see one of Letterman's final shows. So man, I, I got super spoiled getting to go there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, speaking of the Lords, I only have a few shows left uh, this year and I'm I'm a little bummed I'm playing the, the night they're playing in uh, New Hope again. I saw them last year there. I saw them, t- I've seen them twice now. And again, you know, what a great show. So if anybody on the East Coast has a shot at it, you know, check out the Lord's website as well. They're uh, Suffolk, uh, Suffolk Theater and in New Hope in Pennsylvania. Something that just came out, Elio Pace, who does the great Billy Joel songbook over in the UK, back in 2013, did a show, put together a show with, Larry Russell, Reese Clark, and Don Evans, who were part of Billy's original live band. Mm -hmm. And then you had Elio, David Clark, who fronted the Lords of 52nd Street for a few years, Mm -hmm. and Kenny Ingram on piano and and vocals. They recreated the Sigma Sound concert in New York back in 2013. And it finally saw the light of day on CD and digital this fall. Check out eliopace.com is where you can buy the CD, which is where I got it. Um, you can also uh, do digital downloads as well, but these guys hadn't played together in decades and they just fell right in. And it really sounds like you're listening to an early Billy Joel live show here. Oh, that's cool. Check it out. It's called Long, Long Time, The Stigma Reunion Live in New York City. I want to do a, a cheap plug. And as long as we're talking about uh, recreations and concerts and stuff, I want to make a pitch for my tribute. Uh, I usually keep uh, church and state pretty separated here. But we're doing something pretty cool, and I so I think it's worth uh, mentioning for anybody in the on the East Coast in the Philadelphia, Delaware, you know, the tri-state area. There next May, we're pairing up with the Rock Orchestra in Wilmington, Delaware, and we're doing a full weekend of Billy Joel. Have I told you? Have I have I even told you about this yet? Maybe no. This is news to me. This is news to you too. All right, so check this out. Right, our our new frontman. Well, he's he's been with us almost a year now. Is Joe Trainer, who um, leads the Rock Orchestra. And they usually do like full albums for concerts. What we're doing is two nights, right? 
So first one is in the Baby Grand Theater. It's about 300 seats. And we are doing some deep cuts, my friend. I'm talking like Cold Spring Harbor and not She's Got Away and Everybody Loves You Now. Like That's how deep we're going to go with this, right? You're doing like Falling in the Rain, Turn Around. And yeah, like stuff, yeah, yeah, definitely stuff like that. The whole idea is the first night's going to be like all those fan favorites that like, you know, only like nerds like you and I want to hear. But not all. Because yeah. the whole idea is like, we're doing all the singles the second night, right? So like, you know, there's a couple songs that, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but if you think about songs, classics, everybody knows that were never singles, right? So those are going to be right. on the first night as well as those super duper deep cuts, like through the whole catalog. The second night is in Copeland Hall, which I believe is 1,200 seats. And then we're doing all the hits there. So that's going to be like the big concert, right? So if you think yeah. about all that, like pre-turn, little pre-stranger stuff that was like made to hear in like theaters and, and small rooms, you're going to hear them there again, right? And then you're going to hear the big stuff in the big room. But here's the kicker. Not only do I think we're a, a pretty damn good band, we're going to have a string section and a horn section accompanying everything. There's no, I've said this before, there's nothing like real musicians pushing that air in the room with you. Yes. So we're going to have the string section and the horn section both nights. So we're hoping, you know, sell a good couple hundred for each one. But uh, I have delusions of grandeur that we're going to sell at this uh, second night, 1,200 seats. And as it gets closer, I'll probably make another pitch. But I, I urge people to check out uh, thegrandwilmington.org and uh, find the announcements for May 19th and May 20th. That's a Friday and a Saturday of 2023. And it's under the Rock Orchestra. TRO plays Billy Joel, Deep Cuts, and Live Faves. And then TRO plays Billy Joel's Greatest Hits. If I get my act together, we're going to have some good promo videos of just the regular band out pretty soon. And for anyone who doesn't know, what's the name of your, the regular band? Right. So we are Angry Young Band, the Billy Joel Tribute. Awesome. And like I said, I, I, I don't really mention it much on here, but since this is a really uh, unique proposition, I thought people might actually want to hear about this one. I toyed around with trying to put one together myself for a long time, but if you're not in the, in the greater tri-state area, it's really hard to find the cats, pull it off. Um, I tried to do it in Detroit and didn't happen. Right. Been dipping my toe in the water here mm -hmm. uh, in the Northwest, but just haven't haven't found that right mix of people. But uh, I've always wanted to do that. It was a bit of a challenge finding the right front man. Well, you know, Matt DiMarino, who went with us to Sag Harbor, he was our original Billy. And, you know, it worked with him really well because he was a huge Billy Joel fan too. So there was a lot of that channeling the excitement of of not only hearing the songs of your childhood live, but also getting to play them. And, uh, you know, he, he decided to uh, move on during the pandemic. And uh, we were looking around for a little while and, and Joe fell in our lap, so to speak. And, you know, he was the same way where he grew up listening to the stuff. He grew up learning to play it on piano. So it was like a glove with him. And, he, you know, took a little while to get the right people in place to, to really make a band that clicks. So, yeah, eh, check us out. You know, tell me I suck. It's, it's cool. <laughs> All right. So let's get into this interview. This is Denny Somak, the man who put together Billy Joe's first theater show at the Roxy Theater in Northampton in 1973. So you had uh, set up Billy Joe's very first headlining gig. This was at the Roxy right. Theater in Northampton, Pennsylvania. And you were a, a local right. DJ at the time, correct? Correct. Northampton is it's right outside of uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. And you were the first DJ in the country to start playing Cold Spring Harbor. I saw Billy at a broadcast, a, a college broadcasting convention in 1971. 
I didn't know who he was. He came in, sat down at the piano solo, played for a half hour. I was blown away. I went over, got a copy of the album that they were, that's why he was there to promote the album. It's on a very little label called Family Records, distributed by Paramount Records, which is like the only other thing they ever had at the time, I think, was Commander Cody and the Friends soundtrack by Elton John. So uh, I brought it back to my station and started playing it immediately. I, I, you know, I don't know of anybody else that played it before that. What was it about his performance uh, that really struck you the first time you saw him? Well, I think it was the songs. I mean, he he just uh, one after another, you know, she's got away and uh, everybody loves you now. And then he said, I'm going to do a song that I haven't recorded. It's about my mother it's called Rosalinda. And, and, you know, he just like a, a half hour. I was mesmerized by the whole thing because I'd never heard of him. I don't remember what song I played first, but she's got away. There were three or four songs. And then the other guys at the station started playing it. And I was getting pissed because they were ruining my record. And it's very hard to find that record. You know, you had to really search it out. Like I said, it was an obscure label. We were doing a series of concerts and tied in with the radio station at this 500 seat theater called the Roxy Theater. And I immediately called, I think the following Monday, his agent, Chip Racklin in New York. And I said, listen, I want to book Billy Joel for this concert series. And he said to me, Billy Joel, are you are you sure nobody's ever called for him? Are you sure you don't mean Billy Joel Royal or? Yeah, he was like, couldn't believe anybody was calling for him. I said, yeah, Billy Joel. I just saw him at the IBS convention. He was unbelievable. Uh, you know, I want to I want him. He's a big star here. We're playing his record. He said, well, I'll tell you what. I don't even know. Billy, last I heard, he went to California. He was in get really annoyed because nothing was happening with his record. Haven't heard from him. I don't know where he is, but I'll tell you what, if I hear from him and he decides to tour, I'll call you. So then a year and a half goes by and Piano Man is getting ready to come out. I get this call from Denny Chip Racklin. You still want Billy Joel? I said, yeah, you know how big a star he is here? He goes, well, I got him on the Doobie Brothers tour and the Beach Boys tour and the Jay Giles tour. It's the opening act. It's not going over that great, but uh, he's get, playing a half hour. And if you want him, he has one date available, November 25th, uh, which I believe was coming up on Thanksgiving weekend or something like that. I said, OK, he's got to do two shows. Ticket price is going to be a dollar. And he said, uh, OK, how much can you pay him? I said, uh, I don't know. I'll give you $500. And he said, uh, okay, but you got to you gotta put Henry Gross on as the opening act. And I said, well, what's that going to cost me? He said, $250. I said, okay. So for $750, I got Billy Joel and Henry Gross, who, who later went on to have a hit with a record called Shannon. He had been in Sean on I played Woodstock, but he was a solo performer. And Billy Joel two shows i was on the air in the afternoons billy and his road manager drive up to the radio station outside of you know in the in allentown and i you know i remember to this day you know he walks in they were in a white station wagon walks in says, oh billy this is great i can't wait like you know they love you here you're gonna be blown away by the audience we did an interview unfortunately i don't have a copy of the, the interview and while i was there the road manager said listen uh, we got a problem at the theater with the piano. 
can you do me a favor? Would you drive Billy to the theater? I said, sure, no problem. So we get done with the interview. We go outside again to my uh, green 1970 Challenger. And Billy's in the front seat with me and we're driving and I'm taking him to Northampton, which is outside of Bethlehem and Allentown. And I'm going the back way because I know how to get there. I wanted to avoid any rush hour and not that there was any, but taking all the, and you know, so you're going through like all, you know, the factories and the back, you know, of Bethlehem, this is the shadow of Bethlehem steel. And, you know, just like the song, it's all these. And he looks around, he, he goes, wow, where are we? And I said, well, the, uh, the, the theater's in Northampton, but Allentown is, is where we are. That's the major city, but the theater's actually in Northampton. And I said, now, Billy, they're really they're going to love you. He goes, really? I said, let me tell you something. We've been playing your record. They know every song. He goes, really? I, I, well, he said, I hope so. I said, you're going to be blown away. You're gonna have, it's going to be a great show. And the show's sold out. Both shows. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no. Both shows sold out. We get to the theater. I, I bring him around the front. We walk in. There's a big sign. It says, welcome, piano man, Billy Joel at the Roxy with Henry Gross. And he looks at it and he goes, my God, no one's ever given me a sign before. That's amazing. I said, Billy, I'm telling you, they're going to love you. He said, okay, well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll we'll wait and see. I said, okay, you go backstage. Get your band together. I got to check on some things and then I'll be back to see if you need anything else. I go back. I said, you all set? Now he hadn't gone upstairs. The doors had opened in the meantime after he had already been. So he didn't know the theater was full. I said, you know, theater's full as I told you. And, uh, you know, they can't wait to see it. So he goes, okay. Comes out. I introduce him. Thunderous applause. And he looks around and he goes, wow, this is amazing. And he starts playing something. He's got a band. The, the band had only been with him for three weeks because he just started the tour. They only knew like six songs on the Piano Man album. He might have done one song from the pre, from the Cold Spring Harbor. He's halfway through the set and he goes, boy, you people really, you, you know all these songs. You know the first, he said, I'm going to play some songs from the first album. He goes, the band doesn't know them because we haven't had a chance to rehearse anything. So I can do the solo on the piano. So then he does, you know, She's Got Away and uh, Everybody Loves You Now, whatever, you know, a bunch of songs. And the band comes back out and he gets a thundering standing ovation. And he's like, he can't believe it. The show's over. I say, hey, thank you for coming. 40 or 50 people are waiting by the side to get his autograph. And he's like, I, I, I can't believe this is happening. I said, Billy, I told you. And the second show's sold out too. This is Okay. I uh, wanted a copy of this show for myself. So I took, I had one of those uh, new Sony stereo cassette players that you can put in the car and you can take out. And I took it out and I put it on the stage right next to Billy because I could. He starts the, you know, does the first show. I go up, flip the cassette over. It's one of those Maxell 100 minute, you know, radios or no, it's Maxell, I think. Does the second show. And he finishes uh, and he goes, people are yelling, Captain Jack, Captain. He goes, well, now, wait a minute. We, we, we'll close with that. And that'll be up in a minute. He goes, uh, oh, and, and the drummer goes, hey, uh, manager just said 15 minutes yet. Billy goes, 15 minutes more? Because uh, I think he's supposed to do an hour. 
and he was already vamping and spread, you know, he spread it to 45 minutes and he says, well, I, I, I don't know what else to, to do. I mean, I played, I, I can do another solo song from, from the Cold Spring Harbor, but after that, I, I can either start over or I can just play some other stuff. He does um, a, a Beatles song, a Joe Cocker, Elton John song, and he's, you know, doing his imitation, and he's playing, you know, Yellowbrook Road, whatever was out at the time. And he goes, I, I've just, that's it. I've run out of songs. And he does Captain Jack, and that's it. And I go up and say, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Joel, thundering applause, 40 people waiting to get his autograph again. And he just, he says, this is unbelievable. I've never, I've never seen it. And the whole time during the show, he's saying to the audience, can't believe you people know all these songs. How do you know? Because of the radio station? Everybody's going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because this is the best reception we've ever gotten. And this theater is pretty amazing. I just can't believe it. I mean, I'm used to getting booed. I'm opening for the Jay Giles band. I go, she's got away. And they boo me. So I, this is like unbelievable to me. And that was the story of uh, of Allentown. That was it, the next day, I understand from Chip, his agent, Billy and his manager up in the office, and they're going, see, we told you, Billy, because there was a big debate whether Billy should be an opening act or whether he should headline small theaters. And they wanted a headline. And the agent said, well, nobody knows who you are. So they were up there saying, look, you see how well we did. And, you know, we should be playing theaters and blah, blah, blah. And that sort of like got everybody to, you know, at the agency. OK, I think, you know, he did. A, he finished out the Duke, the Beach Boys tour or whatever. And then after that, they started booking him in, in small, uh, smaller places. But he always, and he came back to Allentown about six months later. I didn't have a big enough place to put him because he needed a thousand seat hall or something. So he played uh, Lehigh University. And then he was back in Allentown many, many times over the years, uh, especially before he became really well known because like when The Stranger came out or whatever, because he knew he could sell out Allentown. 1,500 seats, 2,000 seats, could always sell out in Allentown. Yeah. So that's the story. And then, you know, he wrote this song, which originally he was he was going to call it Levittown because that's where he's from. But then he said, you know what? This is like the story of that city. I was in Allentown. So I'm just going to call it Allentown. And that's where the song came from, because he you know, I was with him. And then we go and see the factories and everything that's in that song is what we saw in the car. And I taped the show. I threw it in a box because I mean, who is Billy Joel? I just wanted it to play on the way home, which I did in my cassette player. And then I get my office and I threw it in a box. 40 years later, I'm going through my archives and I see this box with a cassette in it. And it says, uh, BJ at Roxy. I go, what the hell is this? I put it on. There it is. Just like I remembered it. The whole, I got both shows. The only thing I didn't get, because I had to flip the tape over to get the last song in the first set. So it ended when he did the last song before he did the, the cover songs. So I don't have the encore of the three cover songs, but otherwise I got both shows and, you know, in stereo and okay. sounds great. And he also, in the middle of the show, he starts doodling and he, he starts playing something and he, it's like for a minute and a half. And he goes, I don't know what that is, but one of these days I'm going to turn it into a song. <laughs> and then later on, you know, because I heard it and it turned out to be not the next album, but the album after that, a song called Root Beer Rag. When I found the tape, couldn't believe it. The uh, anniversary, 45th anniversary was coming up and the local newspaper in Allentown did a whole big story. And from there, it started to get recognition. And uh, Michael Schmirkanish, who 
Sunsean, a friend of mine, called me up, asked me if I'd come on his show and tell the story, which I did. And he said it got the best response he's ever had for any guest on anything. People were like blown away. They, of course, he starts out by saying, uh, my friend Denny Somak is here and he's about to tell a story, which I think you're going to find unbelievable. So he sort of set him up. I told the same story I just told to you, except that we were playing excerpts from the tape of Billy talking to the audience and everything. And you know, it was just, uh, it was just unbelievable. So if you go to YouTube, Billy Joel, Allentown, um, you can see excerpts, put excerpts up there from the tape, which you can hear. And by the way, I have not talked to Billy Joel since. Not for any reason that I, I just never, I moved to Philadelphia and started to move to New York and my career just never saw us in the same place. I figure, you know, someday he'll hear about it. I mean, I'm, I'm hope, hopefully someone will tell him about it. And maybe he'll want to play it on his uh, serious channel, you know, or maybe they'll want to put it out as an authorized bootleg or something. But right. uh, I have the only copy, both shows. So we'll see what happens. Well, there's more than, than what you've put out then. So you the have the whole first thing. show and the entire yeah. second show, except the three song encore. So I have, I have a long version, a seven minute version. And I think I put the Michael Schmirkanish appearance up too, which is mm -hmm. about 25 minutes. And I play more excerpts than that. So you can check that one out too. Mm -hmm. And everybody's, you know, I'm sure trying to get to him. And I just never bother. What am I going to do? Call him up and say, hey, I'm the guy from, uh, you know, he'll hear about it. Somebody will get to him. And that's that's the way I'm looking at it. Well, when you found the tape again, did it stir up any memories, like things you'd forgotten about? No, because as soon as I heard it, and the quality is very good. Yeah. As as I heard it. I instantly said, that's it. And I remembered the show. I was there for both shows. I used to sit in the first row on the end of the first row in case there was a problem i could get to the stage yeah. i introduce billy and i go down and i sit there start the tape player and the show, i was just so knocked out and i hadn't listened to it a couple of times and played it for some other people at the station mm -hmm. uh but other than that you know after a couple of weeks I, like i said i threw it in a box because i mean who's billy joel and, and you know and i for years thought i had recorded it and couldn't find it and figured okay yeah. and then one day i'm archiving and uh, my all my interviews and stuff and then i found the tape at the time i'm guessing you didn't know much about what billy was up to like just the his agent had said he had disappeared and then a, a year oh. and a half later nobody knew they knew he was right. pissed i mean i later found out because i always like the research i found yeah. out he had been in a band called the hassles mm -hmm. and he made two albums with them he was in a band called attila he made right. one album with them they were, all were bombs so cold spring harbor that was a bomb he finally gets a deal. You know, Cold Spring Harbor should have been his last shot. You know, he got dropped by Paramount or family. Columbia yeah. signed him. And he knew that this was going to be, this is going to be his last shot, Piano Man. And of course, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to hear now about this moment in his career, you know, before Piano Man, or just as Piano Man's coming out. And he's just amazed that he's getting this, this recognition you know, anywhere. I guess he was having a bad time on the Doobie Brothers or Jay Giles tour. You know, he went and to California to play and he, you know, changed, changed his name to Bill Martin and played at a piano bar. That whole yeah. story is true about the, the song, Piano Man. Yeah. Based on, you know, other artists you had met at the time, did he have like a sort of different outlook or was he, it's, you know, he sounds a little more cynical in, in your town. Well, listen, at that I, point. I did about 150 shows during the three years I was in Allentown. And we did the first shows for so many people, either their first show or an early show, because people like to play there because we were right between Philly and New York. 
So bands that were playing you those cities, they could play easily if they didn't want to take a day off. Or if they were going to play New York, a case of some bands, they wanted a, a rehearsal, you know, a, a, like a, a rehearsal date, so to speak. And they would come and play and they, you know, they wouldn't charge me very much because it was either they don't play or they get whatever I can pay. Right. So we ended up doing the first shows for, I think we had Frampton, Golden Earrings, first American show, Nazareth, first American show, a lot of heavy metal stuff, Status Quo, Rory Gallagher. When the Electric Flag reformed, when Blood, Sweat and Tears reformed and they were both going to play the bottom line, they played the Roxy before as their warm-up gig. Oh, here's an interesting one. One of the We used to run a show called the National Lampoon Radio Hour. I don't know if you're familiar with it. And the people that were on that were like John Belushi and Gilda Radner and, you know, what later came to be Saturday night. When the uh, National Lampoon Radio Hour, this is before uh, Saturday Night Live, did a road tour. I booked it. And yeah. I remember sitting downstairs, but, you know, because I used to sit with the acts, make sure they, they needed anything. And I said to uh, Belushi, I said, so what have you guys been up to? And he goes, well, man, we, we just got back from California. We had some meetings. We met with Norman Lear. And I said, wow, how, how'd that go? He goes, ah, he just said, you know what? You guys, you're not ready for prime time. Nobody, nobody, nobody laughed because nobody knew what that meant. Right. And then, of course, you know, a year and a half later, they're they're, they're not ready for primetime players. And that's right. <laughs> but, what, you know, Gilda Radner was John Belushi, Brian, I think Brian Dole. I don't remember all the other people, but I remember Belushi because I was sitting there bullshitting with him for, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I, I saw we did Hall and Oates. We did Kiss. We did Roxy music. We were going to do Genesis. Only the stage was six feet too short, so we couldn't do them. <laughs> um, we had Fleetwood Mac right before Nixon, um, Buckingham joined. Jazz acts did Chick Corea, Return to Forever, Joe Farrell, Larry Coryell, John Hartford. Country acts did uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. Just, you know, pretty much anybody that we were playing, we would call. It sounds like there's sort of a, a, a benefit to, to working in markets that aren't, you know, Philly or L.A. or Nashville, where you're going to get these acts coming up. Well, back then, I mean, you know, there, there used to be a place where you could develop your craft before you. And now you can't do that. You don't happen instantly. It's very rare. You know, you, you try and pay your dues playing clubs or whatever, but it, there's no way to get massive airplay yeah. um, you know, uh, today unless you're a hip hop artist or whatever. But we... Um, you know, we, we, I guess you would call it, it was sort of like artist development. Mm-hmm. We would develop these acts. You know, some of them would come. Well, I did Springsteen, too. Only sold half a house for him. I remember Golden Earring, first time they ever played in America. Radar Love was out. I mean, they were so loud. And Kiss <laughs> were so loud. <laughs> and uh, did Mark Bolin of T-Rex. But that time, his I think his career was on the wane. Because he was really fat. And he looked like a miniature Leslie West, you know. <laughs> um, you know, everybody was was pretty nice. And um, I saw amazing number of shows. There is a website called um, Concerts at the Roxy Theater on Facebook. And if you go to it, you can see pictures. And there's a list. I think a list of the acts are on there. Because it's become a cult thing. The people that used to go to those shows, I don't know, there's like a thousand people in the group. All they do is talk about the unbelievable. Oh, I did Rush. 
I mean, at the time I booked them, Neil Pert wasn't even in the group. But by the time they showed up, Neil Pert was in the group. Uh, I did Kraftwerk's first date in America because these agents would call me and they knew that it didn't matter if they weren't getting airplay because they were new acts. You know, maybe we would take a shot on it. And if we were playing the record and we liked it, then we'd book it. And, you know, never. I'm trying to think of the most expensive act I ever had to pay for. It might have been fifteen hundred dollars and two thousand. And I think that was for it was the Grateful Dead without Jerry. They had a band called Kingfish which was Bob Weir and Phil Lesh. And, and then opening act was Donna and Keith Godshow, which was the other part of the dead. So it was the whole dead without Jerry Garcia, but it was two separate bands. I think that might've been the most expensive act I, that I booked. Were these typical in other parts of the country? Or do you feel that this was something unique to Allentown just with the community you had? No, I, I think that it was true back then. You had what's called uh, regional breakouts, local mm-hmm. breakouts, re- I mean, I don't know if you know who the Michael Stanley band is. They were one of those bands that was huge. They could sell out a 5,000-seater in Cleveland, couldn't get arrested anywhere else in the country. Plenty of regional bits. Southside Johnny, I mean, people know him now, but in the beginning, he was a band down in New Jersey. People went because they, you know, they thought Springsteen might show up, but he didn't have any national following. He built one. He's a, he's a very good artist. But there were a lot of, uh, you know, what they call regional breakouts. And that's, I mean, I remember Rush, Broke out of uh, Cleveland. You know, we would hear about it and we'd go, wow, this is happening. Let's check it out. Mm-hmm. And that's really how records would spread. You would read, there used to be tip sheets, trade magazines, and they would tell you what every station across the country was playing. Mm-hmm. If somebody was getting a good reaction for something, they would list it. And, you know, so we're real music guys. So we checked out a lot of these acts that we heard about. And some of them were really good and we tried to book them. I think it was easier back then. It, today, you can still have a local uh, breakout or be a regional breakout, but you'd become national pretty quick because somebody, you know, it's, would, it would go viral or go on TikTok or, you know, if it was really that good, it would be all like Justin Bieber. It'd be everywhere. Yeah, you saw a lot of bands come through and a lot of them that, that really made it. Was there anything unique or, or distinct about uh, his visit that, that you recall? Yeah, he was blown away. He couldn't, I mean, I've never seen a guy so amazed. I mean, he was 20, he just turned 23 years old. I was 19. Everything, you know, the, the sign, the audience, if you listen to the, look at the view, YouTube, you'll, I mean, you'll see the reaction he has. Wow, I can't believe you people. I mean, on and on and on. He just was like, I can't believe it. So it was well, like probably one of the most enthusiastic artists, but really does that happen where an artist comes in and the whole place knows every song from his previous album. Right. And Rosalinda, not to be confused with Rosalinda's eyes, which is on one of the albums. He's never officially recorded. I think it's the first one on the, on the YouTube recording anyway. And it's just him on piano. We did it. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And he even yeah. says, well, I got this song. And he says, I'm recorded. It's a song about my mother. But people were singing along and he's like, how do you people know all these words? You know, it's like you just can't believe it. I mean, if I was telling you this and I didn't have a tape to back it up, you'd say I was full of crap. I mean, that's what Michael Smirgana said to me. He says, Danny, if I didn't know you and you didn't have this tape, I'd say that's the biggest bullshit story I ever heard. 45, 50 years hindsight. You know, we all know the story now. Just just to know that there there was that moment where he was that sort of beleaguered about it. There's been a lot of talk about just the, the, when they made the decision, no more, no more opening. I, w- I want to be uh, headlining yeah. now. 
Yeah, that was a guy named Chip Racklin was his agent back then. Uh, Chip's still around in the business. Uh, he was a talent executive at MTV. He's done a lot of stuff, but yeah, he he, he had Bill, he signed Billy. He saw him at Max's Kansas City in New York, signed him to be his agent. Uh, anybody know the old album, Cold Spring Harbor album? Okay, oh, good. Wow, that's weird. The what? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, we never worked out all the more songs, man. We just, I put out a new album and we went, okay, let's. Well, let me do She's Got Away because I can do that on my own. Oh, okay, John, we can make the 15 minutes. We're cool. Okay, because usually I run in the audience and I go, She's Got Away. What is that? Crap, man. <clears throat> I can do it now. Okay. She's got a way about her I don't know what it is But I know that I can't live without her She's got a way of... All right, well, Danny, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me and going through the story. It really adds a lot of context for what's available online right now and certainly for how we're going to approach listening to this and, and reporting back on it. This show in particular was November 28th, 1973. Frame of reference, the Piano Man album was released November 9th. Well, you can find this on YouTube. Just uh, look up Billy Joel Roxy Theater, Northampton, PA. One of the ones I found here is called Newly Found Tape of Billy Joel in Concert from November 28th, 1973. Four songs here are, are Rosalinda. Now, that's not Rosalinda's Eyes. That's actually the unreleased Rosalinda. Next is Souvenir, put in a really different context on this recording. She's Got Away which we'll find out was not supposed to be on the set list, and everybody loves you now. But really what makes this one interesting, at least in this form, is the banter that we get between the songs. And I'm going to predict that we end up kind of hanging on that a little more than the performances. That's what's especially relevatory about this recording. Billy was at a very interesting stage in his career, and it really comes across in the banter, and um, it's very topical uh, yeah. <laughs> as far as where he's at. And um, how the tours have been going and how everything has been going. So yeah. he hasn't developed the rock star banter yet. So he's just a young musician cutting his teeth, um, talking about what it's like on the road and being in the business. What you notice and what really gets put into context when you think about the things that Denny told us about his experiences so far is he sounds almost defensive, at least early on. I've played with musicians, good musicians who get this way sometimes because, you know, we're a moody bunch and, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, it's just not clicking for them or whatever else. And they just, they just get a little like, yeah, all right, yeah, we're going to do this, you know, that kind of thing. And you, you get right. a little bit of that out of him here. And certainly I think because as he goes into, he's been used to for the last couple of weeks, getting really the cold shoulder being the, the, the opening act for the Doobie brothers and the beach boys. And it's clearly pissing him off. He must've been like, all right, fine. What the hell? I'll do this freaking theater in the middle of uh northeast pennsylvania why the hell not so you know he just makes time in the middle of this tour gets out there he's probably i'm going to imagine he's a little jet lagged or at least uh tired from being on the road and now he's got to make this other jaunt on his day off one-offs are tricky to pull yeah. off and like you said you know when you're touring days offs are precious i don't think billy understood just how into his music this audience already was because it, it's revealed in what he has to say that this hasn't been the case anywhere else in the country, let alone people knowing Cold Spring Harbor. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if he thought that Denny was BSing his manager, <laughs> you know, just be like, as a lark, let's just get this guy Billy up here, you know, and he, right. and he runs into this crowd that's just like totally keyed into it. This is the first time outside of home where I think Billy finally feels like he's got his crowd who's there for him. Yeah. You know, when you, when we listen to those boots from like 1971, oh, was that pre-Cold Spring Harbor or just after Cold Spring Harbor came out and he's just, he's right. back in Long Island or he's in Manhattan and he's just ripping with the people there because they probably all knew him very loose he's very with it and you know obviously this crowd doesn't know him the, the same way but they're certainly responding as if they've known him for a while or at least his music because that's what's crazy is just like like this one dude was playing this album nobody had the benefit of hindsight to know that this was going to be the album that nobody knew for years and years and years right. this was another new album by another great promising artist and that's how ra powerful radio was especially back then i mean it could make an artist, yeah. you know, in these markets. Look at, you know, Ed Shockey, WMMR. Mm -hmm. I mean, he championed Billy as well, especially the early 70s when radio stations had flexibility and freedom. They weren't all corporate chains yeah. and program directors and even DJs had the freedom to play what they liked. They were the tastemakers. They could curate these playlists. Hey, 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 young people. Uh, radio back then was the TikTok <laughs> of, of the 60s. <laughs> You know, it kind of also, I think, came along at the perfect time for Billy confidence wise. It gave him like a shot in the arm of like, okay, you know, there are people out here responding to me. I just need to find the right, right places and the right format, because this is when he said, I'm not doing the opening acts anymore. I'm, I'm playing theaters. You know, it's a ballsy move to try to fill a place on your own. Yeah. I may be playing to less people, but they'll be my people. It's the right people. It's the right people. And that's what's yeah. important. We start off with Rosalinda. And I got to be honest yep. with you, I never gave this one a, a real close listen before, and I'm glad I did this time. I dig this song. Yeah. It's got that real classical thing that he didn't come back to for a little while because he was out in the Western sort of idiom for two albums. Some of these lyrics are a little rote, a little banal, but a couple times he twists them in ways I don't didn't see coming. The line, uh, the children have all grown, whatever it was about dancing. Those weren't the rhymes oh, I yeah. thought he was going to go for, and that, was, that made yeah. the song more interesting to me. But the melody is mm -hmm. really nice. The piano playing is great. I love the fact that he's like, yeah, I'm going to come out by myself and just warm up my voice. <laughs> and play a song that never came out. Yeah, play a song mm -hmm. that never came out. And you know what, man? That, ain't a, that does not sound like an easy one to play because that piano could sit on its own the whole time. And then mm -hmm. he comes in with the vocal with this melody and rhythm that's not just following along with what his fingers are doing. Pretty technically accomplished piece in that way. You know, there's a couple demos of it from the Cold Spring Harbor era. Here, the tempo is a bit slower. Hmm. It's it's a little less frenetic. Sits in a much nicer spot here to me. Yeah. He slowed it down a couple ticks, and that just gave it a different feel altogether. He abandoned it shortly after, because there's not much evidence of him playing it once Street Life even came out. The highlight of this boot, to me, is his introduction of Souvenir, because it adds this hitherto unknown dimension to it, that I think if this recording hadn't surfaced we would never have this on the record that that's really what he was getting at because souvenir ironically to me feel is such a universal theme whereas i usually yeah. find that songs about the music business are not that universal that it's usually like stepping into right. these unusual shoes billy talks a lot with this audience he's really feeling them out and he's you know, kind of talking about where he's been and what he's been up to which is funny to listen to because 
it, it almost feels like a therapy session for him <laughs> in a lot of ways because these people don't know him. You know, they know his songs and they don't know a thing about him. And he's talking to him like, right. oh, maybe he's been back here. This is like his third or fourth time back and he's updating people. But he's not. He's just he's just talking. And the other thing is, too, I bet you this was the case as well. He had to talk that much because he didn't have that much material ready with the band. He even says that later no. on. But I don't think yeah. he's played this long. He had like probably a half hour's worth of uh, material. But anyway, when he talks about Souvenir, he talks about getting kicked around in the music business for a few, you know, he's been in the music business for a couple of years now and he's, you know, he's, he's gotten the shaft here and there and he wrote this song about it. And what a different way of thinking about this song of, of just saying to yourself, like, you know, Cold Spring Harbor and maybe Attila and the Hassles records were just to him at this point, Souvenirs, like... Was there that yeah. moment where he thought he was going to have to hang this up and he was just have these tokens of his uh, couple years in the music business before he went back to trying to like shucking oysters? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what I wonder because, you know, those two failed. Cold Spring Harbor did not do well. And he talks about that, like you said, and this was before Piano Man was the flop initially because mm-hmm. Piano Man was still just out. Yeah. Hearing him say that completely blew my mind. I always thought of this as the sister song to Where's the Orchestra of about just like a reminiscing of times gone by and just the sa- sadness and somberness of a relationship ending, things of that nature. Like to me, this did not smell like the music business at all. Right. Which makes it pleasantly surprising. I've been uh, out of this business for about a year and a half, I guess. Having all kinds of legal hassles and you name it, just music business crap in general. And um, I wrote a song about it. It's just a little thing. It's called Souvenir. Is this the first known performance of Souvenir? I want to say yes. How could it not be? <laughs> yeah, because it is 11 months before Street Life Serenade came out, and there's not a lot of audio recordings of the Piano Man era. Given his description of what these concerts with the Doobie Brothers and the Beach Boys are like, I highly doubt that he's going to take a crack at a short, delicate solo piano piece with that crowd. Right. You know, when he's talking about later on, he talks about like how huge these coliseums are. And I'm going to say this has got to be the first time he's playing Coliseums. He's first time he's playing venues that big in his life, right? Granted, he's not the headliner. So another fun thing about the banter here is, you know, hearing his, his first reactions to what it's like, you know, just hearing as it goes up and up and up and up and up, you know, touchdown or whatever else. You got to kind of tailor your set based on one of the other bands you're playing with and the venue. You know, this had to really be off the cuff. We've talked a lot about how Billy tends to develop these stories and these jokes and these remarks. You know, over a few years, you see him try him out in different interviews and you see them evolve like a comedian would. But he's got to be riffing here for the most part, because mm-hmm. where else is he making these observations? He's not doing it right. from the state, from the Coliseum stages. This is stuff he's no. thinking about. It's got to be just in his head. I mean, he's stuck in the van with, with his band. Maybe he said it once or twice, but that's it. And you get about as honest to Billy Joel as you'll get on stage in those moments. Musically, I mean, souvenir, it's all there. Melody-wise, arrangement, piano-wise, it's all fully formed. So that song was like done and in the can. So, you know, I wonder I wonder when that song got written. By the time Piano Man came out, it's done. It's written. So was this 
between Street Life and Piano Man and it just didn't find a home till Street Life? Or was it in the Cold Spring Harbor area? I'm very curious. I'm going to say it wasn't during the Cold Spring Harbor period because we would have seen it on the bootleg demos. Those are pretty much all out there and it's not there. You got to wonder where, at what point he adopted that mindset. At what point he felt like he was out of the ocean long enough to see the water. I want to say it was post Cold Spring Harbor, pre-Piano Man. Unless he managed to write it off the cuff. You know, he's the kind of guy that would just like bang something for a while. Like, you know, you wonder if he had the melody sitting pre-Piano Man and and spit out those lyrics real quick. Because it is a short song. It sounds like something, all right, this is 110% conjecture, but you know, it sounds like something he, he could have even gotten off stage at one of these Doobie Brother Beach Boys concerts. And was just kind of feeling down and just jotted Jot, it down. Exactly. Jotted down the lyrics and then found the found the music for it that he had already written. It's a possibility. I yeah. have zero, it's zero, certainly zero, possible. zero proof of that. This one gets a good crowd response. And look, look at song one and two. We're all brand new for this audience. Yeah. Song number three, at least as we're seeing it, is not new for them, which is a, surpri- a surprise no. to Billy. He's realizing yeah. he's running out of time. <laughs> and... He's, he, and he realizes that they know Cold Spring Harbor, which takes him by surprise because he also talks about also an interesting dimension, which I'll get into in a moment. He talks about how nobody knows Cold Spring Harbor and he's amazed that these guys know it. And then he's like, the DJ was playing it. Now, I think he knew that. He knew the DJ was playing it. Yeah. He had to have talked to Denny. But it was a nice piece yeah. of crowd work to be like, yeah, the DJ. And everybody's like, yeah, the, you know, Denny. Right. And this and that. Yeah. But- it seems pretty off the cuff that he's like, all right, let me think. He's it's because somebody calls out everybody. Lo- somebody calls out something. I think it was everybody loves you now. Yeah, and he's like, well, this band is like just a few weeks old. We haven't learned all. They haven't learned all these songs, and so he does another solo piece, which is just she's got away because he could, as he says, he could do this by himself. Now yeah. it looks like, and maybe I'm biased because you know we've been talking with him a little. Artie Rip, he might get a little reconsideration. Mm-hmm. I think. I think the dust is so far settled that more of us are are done with the Artie Rips. Uh, an evil bastard, you know, and we're all just, you know, more of us, right. I think, are, are like, well, you know what? Yeah, he gave him a shot. Maybe it wasn't the best deal in the world, but look, it was the springboard. Sigma Sounds probably wouldn't have happened without it. Probably wouldn't have had the song Piano Man if he didn't have to hide out in the bar. Now, the flip side to that is that Billy has to suffer, not suffer the ignominy, but, you know, Billy's out there thinking this is going to be his shot. And he's talking about how he goes into all these record stores and it's just not there. And that's something I think, yep. you know, the mastering error gets all the press, so to speak, about the problems with Cold Spring Harbor. It's easy to just let that- Be the story. Yeah, be the story and be like, yeah, and then somehow it, that meant it didn't go anywhere. But it sounds like there were some distribution challenges too, if it wasn't in stores anywhere. Yeah, it simply did not get into record stores. If you're trying to break an artist, you're putting them out on the road touring with the Beach Boys and the Doobie Brothers and the Jay Giles Band, like doing these big tours as support act- you're going to make sure his record is stocked in those markets. Yeah. Right. You want people going the next day to pick up the record. If they, you know, when they're yeah, going like, to pick oh, up Oh, I like movies. that Billy Joel guy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see if I can find it at, you know, Record World. And, you know, we don't know if that was a failure on Artie's part or uh, just nobody wanted to pick it up. You know, it's like, yeah, you should be able to. But then again, if you can't, you can't. But then again, I guess we don't know what kind of expectations were set for it is the big thing. Right. You know, maybe Artie was yep. like, hey, man, I'm going to do my best to get it out there. Or we don't know if he was like, oh, man, dude, no, I got, I know this guy and I know that guy because uh, those dudes are out there, too. I just had to deal with um, yeah. with some of them that uh, oh, yeah. promised the moon. And, uh, oh, man, I got to come up with a good one here. I got to come up with a good metaphor. Somebody that promised <laughs> the moon, promised me the moon and couldn't even give me a crater. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll workshop that over the next four episodes, Billy style, then I'll have it. <laughs> 
Couldn't even give you a telescope. Yeah. <laughs> well, if we do have a chance to sit down with Artie on the record, that that's certainly something to discuss with him. Is you know what were the the mechanics around the distribution of this album? Like who did it go through? And because like you said, yeah, the mastering thing was one thing, but if the record just wasn't in stores, yeah, there was no way it was going to do well. I'll add one thing to that. I th- I don't think we've had this conversation on the podcast because we have spoken to Adam. And I actually did get the occasion to speak with Artie briefly on the phone a couple of weeks ago. Michael and I have long held the theory that Cold Spring Harbor was more of a personal album than Billy Let On. The story has been that he made that album as sort of a demo for other artists to use to pick up those songs and, and record them themselves. So he didn't want to be like in front doing it. He wanted to be a songwriter at that point. And so that's why he put out the album. Everybody was telling him, well, if you want to do that, you have to put the album out so it's out there. But then, you know, Adam has really put nail on the head and say, no, my father really pushed him to write from the heart and write personal things. And that confirmed this hypothesis that Michael and I had come up with. So at the junction of these two stories, you have to wonder if distribution actually wasn't on top of the list, because maybe maybe they put the money toward the orchestration. Maybe they put the money toward putting Billy up in the house for a couple months, put the money towards recording good demos. Who the hell knows? And they were like, well, this is, he wants us to be his industry album, his demo album. You know, maybe we just need to get this in the right 200 hands instead of selling 100,000 of them to potential fans. It's a possibility. And again, 100% conjecture. And uh, Artie and Adam, uh, let's do this, man. No, seriously, you know, your story's absolutely important. The story has been told in many ways over the years, and it's super easy to cast certain people as the villains, but. You know, Artie is such a key figure in Billy's early career. I mean, you know, even Billy will say at the end of the day, you know, everyone else said no. Artie said yes. Yeah. Regardless of whether he signed a deal that was was not fair, whatever, whatever. You know, Artie was, you know, up front, put his money where his mouth is and be like, I think this guy has potential. It's not insignificant. All right. So, yeah, Billy goes on. He says, this is the most polite audience I've had, <laughs> which is yeah. now again, you know, you got to put together. He's been playing clubs in Long Island yep. and then probably to his buddies, which I'm sure you know, they're, they're giving it to him a little, you know, back and forth on the st- off the stage. And then he's playing yeah. to people that don't give a damn about him, you know, as an opener. And this might be the first time he's had sit down audience because, I mean, the houses were rocking. Attila was loud. Yep. Cold Spring Harbor, yeah. he didn't tour that much. So this might mm-hmm. be the first time people sat and listened to him. Might be more of yeah. a shot in the arm than you think. You know, this really helped him figure out where he needed to be and what he needed to be doing. You wonder if that made street life all the more frustrating because he's realizing that I do have something to say. People want to hear it. And then he has to rush through making this, this next album again, pure conjecture. I'm on a conjecturing mode tonight. Somebody's going to have to get on and, uh, and start (laughs) confirming or denying this stuff for us. You know, we try not to be too over speculative, but there's just not a lot on the record from that era. And there's the more we learn, the more questions we have basically. Well, we're scientists at heart is really what it is. So we, we, we form hypotheses, right. you see, <laughs> and we don't yeah. call them theories because they're not, uh, they're not scientific theories. Yes. Last one we get is everybody loves you now. Now the whole band is out. Sound good, sound and lively. There's not a whole lot to say about it, but that, because it's certainly not embryonic because this was recorded now two albums ago. So it's figured out. Obviously they were playing this one on tour. Number one, it's upbeat. Number two, the band knows it. I mean, when you go to Great American Music Hall, you know, you really hear a cracking, cracking version of it. Oh, sure. Uh, but this sure. one's no slouch either. You know, this one just 
you know, has great energy. Yeah. It just lends itself to just a piano guitar. Dun, 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 dun. It gets you moving, gets the toe tapping. And this performance is the Cold Spring Harbor album version performance. Like the original one, not the 83 redone one. Right. Which honestly kind of more adapted to what the song turned into live, if you think about it. Because by Songs in the Attic, it had turned into its own thing that the Lords were doing with Billy. Uh, and then when Artie redid the record in 83, I think they were kind of listening to that, into what it kind of became to inform like the new drums and all of that. It is fun then to go back to listen to this one and the one on Great American Music Hall to hear how it sounded back then. Oh, and now I get to listen to it because uh, a couple weeks ago I found it. Uh, I fi- finally found the original vinyl. With Everybody Loves You Now, like it really wasn't a live staple after like the mid 70s. Yeah. It, you know, they played it in the clubs for Songs in the Attic and then it disappeared again until like 2006. And that brings us through it. You know, Denny uh, calls Billy back, you know, makes sure uh, everybody gives him a big hand. And, you know, hearing this back again, you wonder if Denny really did that to, to really drive home the point to Billy that. His music has merit. People appreciate it. People are responding to it. You're going to find your people. Yeah. Here's some of them now. <laughs> Just don't don't let yourself right. forget that because these people are legitimately clapped for. They paid 2.75 American dollars for this ticket back in 1973. <laughs> All right, let's do this real quick. 275 in 1973 dollars. Oh, in today's money. $18.34. So an $18 ticket. You know, that's nothing that's to sneeze at for like first time this guy's around, you know. That's the extent of the released songs from the Roxy Theater, November 28th, 1973. Thanks to Denny Somak for recording it in the first place, coming on to speak with us about it. Yeah, Denny, uh, do us all a favor there, man. Leak another one or two, would you please? Uh, And, uh, you know, (laughs) our friends in Billy's camp, you guys interested in, uh, yeah, yeah, little, uh, little something, you know? Yeah. Look, man, you guys are doing reissues. This would be a good one. Give it to Bradshaw Lee. Have him clean it up. Dylan and Springsteen have been notorious for doing like the bootleg series and releasing all these old shows. Uh huh. Cause, and I knew they had the audience for that kind of thing. And at that time I would have said 1000% Billy does not, but I, I feel that's been changing in recent years. Yeah. I mean, it probably does exist cause he's still playing live and, and people are into older recordings and you know, he did the thing where he didn't record anything else. So if you're hungry for it, you got to go find these and they're still revelatory and a lot to, into as we're seeing here where you know we get these four songs and we've spoken for our, our clock is at an hour 20 now so at least 50 minutes by the time we stop stopped bsing about everything else <laughs> you know we had the news items for billy we had a bullet point list of items and that was our guide this we had these you know we had the interview and we had four songs that was it you know we we've got you know these facts and when we do like you know a year we'll run off the same list or if we're doing pop culture references like we did, we'll, we're working off the same list, but we each do our own listening and research and we don't even talk about it yeah. because we don't want any preconceived notions on what each other's thinking to inform the conversation ahead of time. So we want it to unfold organically every time, which I love it. We both love it, but the flip side of that, it can cause these tangents and they can cause us to go in left field and go on these runs that are going to end up on the cutting room floor. But that's part of the fun of it. You know, we never know really where these are going to lead every, every week. The only one we had trouble with was what? 1969, 70, 71, one of them. Maybe it was 71. We didn't find a lot. 
Yeah, that one was a little light. And then one of the tour ones we did, like the bridge tour or the Russian tour, surprisingly enough. No, the bridge tour we had plenty. It was one of those like off years. It had to be. We let the material kind of fall where it may. If we have a long one, we have a long one. And you know, if we end said. up with an episode, <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> but ultimately, that's our episode this time. That's our the deepest of dives into just four songs and a little bit of stage banter. But I really feel like this is such an important time because I, I really think that Billy is finally fi- figuring out where to go next and coming off the um, Cold Spring Harbor issues and trying to find his place in the music industry as somebody just coming up. It's uh, I, I love seeing this this stage in his career for sure. It's amazing how much there is to glean from this one recording, this one happenstance. You know, it's, put this in the file with all the things that had to break just so for Billy to make it. And that's not unique to him. Everybody had to have those things to break just so to attain those levels of success. Success is what? Like 90% hard work, 10% luck or the other way around? Yeah. You know, you have to be like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to be prepared for when the opportunity comes or else you're not going to maximize it. But uh, I think this is an excellent example of that, that this came up and he had the chops and he had the songs and he had even the band uh, to, to make the most of this and to make the right impression on this one audience that drove his decision to stop being an opening act and start headlining small theaters instead. And by all indications, this was the pair of shows that kicked that off. That's what's been so fascinating for me doing covering these early years. And that's why I really would love to talk with Artie Rip on the podcast is from the stranger on, we know a lot about the world of Billy Joel that, you know, as the years went on, his coverage got more and more, more and more thorough. But these early years when, you know, his career really could have gone either way. You know, we're talking about, you know, this Roxy Theater performances and you know when you know we talked with keith yates about you know the piano man resurrection essentially and all these things that just were a, each you know little ingredients that go into making it possible for billy to get to the next stage of his career it's so fascinating putting these pieces together what do you guys think have you listened to this one yet i feel like a lot of people haven't i feel like a lot of people should go find it on youtube it's there it's free go check it out it's only 20 minutes Get back to us. We want to know what you think of this. We want to know uh, your impressions here in it, Have you, especially if you've never heard Rosalinda before. Give us a shout. Podcast at gmail.com. And we are on, of course, the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. TikTok, we're thinking about. Hey, you know, uh, we got to jump back on the Discord server. We haven't been on there in a little while. Yeah, we've got a link yeah. in the show notes um, to our Discord server where we're, it's kind of slowly picking up steam, but we got some great folks in there just some spirited discussion about the episodes about Billy happening in general and everyone's everyday life and other music everyone's into. And it's a really cool community that um, has kind of been spawned out of the podcast. So uh, if you're hip to discord, um, check out the link in the show notes and come hang out with us till then uh, I'm going to sign off, put on my headphones and check out the Atmos re-release of nylon curtain. Absolutely. And, uh, I'm going to go listen to this souvenir cut one more time because uh, I, I, I really want to pay attention to these lyrics. My mind was blown learning that this was about the music business. So I, I, I need to go listen to it with that in mind now. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks.
Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 